Hello, and welcome to the show. I'm Martin Willis, your host. And I have been uh, wanting to do a show about the Frederick Valentich case for a long time. And so happy to have a guest on. He actually is going to talk about he witnessed some part of the event. Um, he's been interested in UFOs and researching. And he's thought about writing a book, he said, for over 40 years. He finally did. Took him about five years. So uh, his name is George Simpson. And uh, right from Australia, it's tomorrow there. It's uh, Wednesday. And uh, he is, It's I think it's like 11 o'clock in the morning for him, uh, 7 o'clock for us here on the East Coast. And our blog this week, it's the last one. We're finally getting to the last one of the series, Behind the Scenes of UFO Cover-Up question mark, live, which was a series back in the 1980s. This is part four, and it is pretty interesting as it goes along uh, the MJ-12 documents and things like that. Uh, I really like the way uh, Charles does his research and uncovers actually quite a bit of things. So our blogs are always good. They're made into a audio blog. Uh, you know, once a week, we put those up as well. And thank you so much for watching the show or listening to the show either way. And as we go along today, we're going to be talking about a few different things. I'll make sure that they get posted somehow in the show notes um, so you can always check back with that. So I want to thank everyone that listens to the show. Uh, and I also want to thank everyone that supports the show. Anyone can do that for just $2 or more a month. And the link is over at podcastufo.com. Same as where our blog is as well. If you want to get on our weekly uh, newsletter, you can find out who's coming up uh, for each. Uh, it goes out once a week, the day of the show, so you know what the guest, who the guest is and the blog is. And I'm going to bring in our guest, George Simpson, right now. Hello, George. Hello, Martin. How are you? Great. And uh, thank you Good. for taking a little bit of time off of work uh, so, Thank you. So we can talk about, I think, a, a very important uh, and interesting UFO case. Thank you very much for having me on your program. Uh, I really appreciate it, having the opportunity to talk about this case. Um, it's been a big part of my life. Um, the, the first thing I'd like to say about it is that this pilot um, went missing. Uh, he was only 20 years old right. when, when he went missing. Um he and I were actually born the same year. Now I'm I'm no longer a 20 year old like I've been thinking about this case you know for 44 years. I think about it every day. And uh, see, I saw the plane go past uh, the evening that he was heading out towards the um, his eventual end, um, which happened that evening or soon after. But anyway, um, it took me a long time of thinking about it before I I started doing the book and the book took about five years to write but look there's a, a story of a 20 year old man who's flying a plane he has a, uh, an ambition to become a commercial pilot and when you when you're flying he, he had a he had a pilot license already um that's a picture of him there you know that's at Moorabbin airport um that's not the actual plane he, he disappeared in but that's um typical of the plane that he flew it's a Cessna aircraft and he was flying down to a place called King Island. Uh, mm. It's about a 90-minute flight uh, from where he took off from Moravan Airport, about 90 minutes to get down to King Island. And he, a lot of people make the mistake of saying, oh, it was his first night flight and his first night flight over water. Um, had he reached his destination, yes, it would have been his first night flight coming back, but it was still daylight when he was going down. I saw him what fly time past did in the daytime. Pardon me. Uh, what time did he depart the airport and leave for King Island? It was about 10 past or quarter past six in the evening. And mm -hmm. in, in Australia, in, in our area, then in October, uh, it was October the 21st, uh, we get a really long twilight period because we're quite a way down south. We're about 32 degrees south. So we mm. get a long twilight period. It doesn't, if we lived in Sydney or somewhere like that, uh, one minute is daytime, all of a sudden, bang, it's nighttime. <laughs> but mm -hmm. that's not how it is here in Melbourne because we're down much closer to the South Pole. We're 32 degrees down. So um, he would have had a night flight coming back, yes. He had um, a, a limited instrument rating, but he did have a, a Class 4 instrument rating, so he was fine mm. to fly over there. Um, a, 
aviation friends of mine that um, I've flown down there with them in that area have told me that um, if you're a young and reasonably inexperienced pilot, you probably wouldn't deliberately fly over the, the ocean um, in a single engine aircraft alone at night time. You'd probably mm. get a twin engine aircraft instead and take somebody with you. But he did neither of those things. Um, but, but anyway, he was just a young guy. He was uh, 20 years old and uh, he w- wanted to get his air experience, his, his flight hours up because he wanted to become a commercial pilot. So that was his aim. He had been in the um, the Australian Air Force Air Cadets uh, as a younger bloke um, and he did very well. He learned to fly from the Royal Australian Air, Air Force uh, in, in a base down in a place called Sale in Victoria. And um, the flight instructors down there were pretty enthused with his enthusiasm uh, and his flying ability, and they thought he'd make a good flight instructor. But when it came to reality, um, passing the examination to get into the Air Force, uh, they only take the top students. Mm. You've got to get top marks or you don't get into the Air Force. And he found it was a struggle. He, He didn't get into the Air Force. So he decided, oh, well, I'll become a commercial pilot. So he started taking steps to become a commercial pilot. And that's what he was doing the night he went past. Now, <clears throat> I was waiting for a visitor to come to, to my house and, I, and they were running late. And I went outside at about quarter past six uh, and I saw this blue and white Cessna fly across the sky. I watched it go past. And, and look, I, I'm, not a, I'm not a psychic person but a thought popped into my mind as soon as I saw the plane and I can't explain why but it was almost it was almost like hearing a message you know I got this thought in my mind straight away keep your eye on that plane keep watching that plane and I mean where we lived wasn't too far from Raven Airport and we'd see lots of airplanes and helicopters flying around all the time and most people just ignore them so why did this idea pop into my mind anyway the next day, there was a news report that a plane had gone missing and uh, that uh, he'd probably run out of fuel and they were searching for him in Bass Strait, which is the ocean that goes between the mainland of Australia and Tasmania. Um, mm. And that's where he was going because King Island is in the middle of that ocean. So he was heading to King Island. And... Uh, the news report said that he'd probably run out of fuel, but we know he actually totally refueled the plane before he took off. Mm. Uh, also, the, the plane had been serviced that morning. The the mechanic, Mike Hodges, who I know personally, he lives very close to me here, um, he serviced the plane. Uh, and, and the funny anecdote that he tells me is that he'd serviced the plane that day and um, he basically handed the keys over to Fred and Fred was about to take off and it was being refueled. Now, Fred was a very, very uh, intelligent person, a very sensible. Um, one of the Air Force cadet guys said he was common sense on two legs. Mm-hmm. And the thing he wanted to do was uh, check everything in the plane. It's just been serviced, but he still got, had to go through the checklist. Yeah. Because that's what you do. That's right. I, I, took, I took some yeah. lessons, and I remember you had to. You had to look the whole thing over, check the oil, you name it, and... Uh, all the the flaps and you know you go all around the plane and I was flying a Cessna as well, so exactly. yeah, yeah. And well, you know your life depends on it, right? So yeah, he was going to go in the plane. He got in the plane and he took off and he went down there. Now uh, he was going down. What they do is they follow the coastline. That you might have heard of the Great Ocean Road. Anyway, there's a lot of surf beaches along the that coast, the west coast. And he went right down to a place called Cape Otway, and at that point. You're just about level with King Island, so you turn left and then you're going due south. And so um, six minutes, when he got to Cape Otway, he reported, I'm now at Cape Otway and proceeding to King Island. Just before he got there, the air traffic advisor, Steve Roby, contacted him and said, "Um, uh, we need to adjust your search and rescue time because, you know, you, you don't have time to get there in time. They have this system, a safety system, search and rescue. If you're flying somewhere and you make a flight plan, 
if you don't reach a certain point by a certain time and call in uh, and they, they can't contact you, then they, they put out a search for you. Now, he had to adjust that time because he left a bit later than he meant to. So on his original flight plan, he was going to leave at a certain time. He was running late, so they needed to adjust the, the safety barrier time-wise. Time I see. Anyway, they, they just organised that just before he got to Cape Portway, and then he turned left to go down to King Island. So he was a very, very cautious and very careful pilot, and he was a young, young man who was very alert. And six minutes into that flight across Bass Strait, he, all these other people were in communication with air traffic control, but about six minutes down towards King Island, he said, uh, he called in and he said, um, Melbourne, is there any known traffic below 5,000? And he got the reply back, uh, no known traffic. And he said, well, I have, it seems to be a large aircraft below 5,000. So he's seeing this thing flying around him. Um, and uh, they said, well, uh, uh, what type of aircraft is it? Um, what type of aircraft? And he says, um, I cannot affirm. It seems like to me like landing lights. Now, it's not dark yet, and, and uh, some people have said uh, all the planets were visible in the West too. The trouble is, well, one of those planets, you need a telescope to see it, and the other two don't move around. They stay right where they are, like yeah. the stars. They just sit there. So they're not going to look like they're flying up to him and flying away from him. <clears throat> uh, he said, um, the aircraft is, this aircraft has just passed over me at least 1,000 feet above. I said, uh, Roger, uh, is it a large aircraft? Confirm. He says, um, unknown. Due to the speed it's travelling, is there any Air Force um, aircraft in the vicinity? This thing's going very, very fast. So he's thinking it could be some kind of a jet, some sort of an aircraft. Hmm. Um, and he still gets the reply, um, his aircraft is Delta Sierra Juliet, DSJ. They say, Delta Sierra Juliet, no known aircraft in your vicinity. And then a minute or two later, he says, Melbourne, it's approaching now from due east towards me. And so they acknowledge that. Then he holds, he holds his microphone open for a few seconds and there's this kind of a staticky sound. I, I liken it to if I had an industrial sewing machine on this table here running, an industrial sewing machine running fast, and we were on the phone, you'd hear this noise coming from it. That's what it I, sounded like over his. I radio. have the. Uh, why don't I play that? I have that clip. Oh well, no, that's no, that's later on. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Have, that's, yeah, that's yeah, very okay. end, yeah. Right. This All is right. just like a general background static noise that's coming through. Now, there's other guys in the air at the time, and their radio signals are coming in clear sound and clear as a bell. But every time Fred's on the on his microphone, there's a a, a clickety sort of sound, static oh, I, interference. Oh coming yeah. through whenever he speaks. Uh, and he says, it's approaching now from due east towards me. So that gets acknowledged. He says, um, then he says this. This is very interesting. He says, it seems to be playing some sort of game. Right. He's flying over me two, three times at a time at speeds I cannot identify. Mm. Now, how do you unpack that? What does that mean? Yeah. What, what's capable of flying over you? At two, three times at a time, and it's playing some sort of game with him. That that's a little bit kind of that that sort of gets you a little bit worried, doesn't it? Um, and then yeah, so then, and then like orbits above him later oh, well, on, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. That, that comes up. Steve says to him, Mom, "What's your actual level?" And he says, well, "My level is four and a half thousand four five zero zero." And he says, "Now." Can you confirm that you cannot identify the aircraft? He says, affirmative, straight away. And they say, okay, stand by. So what do you do? You've got an aircraft that's it's making an unusual noise on the radio and uh, he can't identify what it is. Anyway, Fred comes on the radio and he says, uh, Delta Sierra Juliet, so he's identifying himself, and he says, it's not an aircraft, it's... And then you hear this noise which is just the static coming over the radio but which nobody else has got um 
so he's he's trying to describe it, but he he's lost for words. He can't can't even say what it is. Uh, so then they say, Delisio Juliet Melman, can you describe this uh, aircraft? And he says this. He says, as it's flying past, it's a long shape, and then it goes clickety clickety click again for a few seconds. And he says, I cannot identify more than that. It gets such speed, and there's a bit more interference on the radio. And he says, it's before me right now, Melbourne. And uh, Melbourne replies with, oh, Roger, and how large would this uh, aircraft be? And he says, um, it seems that it's chasing me. What I'm doing right now is orbiting, and the thing is just orbiting on top of me also. It's got a green light and sort of metallic-like. It's all shiny on the outside. That's the point that Dr. Haynes mentioned in his lecture that on, when he heard the tape, he said it sounded like to him, Fred was saying, it seems like it's chasing me. In the official transcript, it says it seems like it's stationary, what I'm doing is orbiting. But no, Fred said it seems like it's chasing me. So he just said earlier it's playing some sort of game. Now he says it's chasing him. So that's a little bit scary. Then he says, oh, Delicio um, Juliet, it's just vanished. So then he gets the reply. Um, oh, no, he asks, would you know what kind of aircraft I've got? Is there a certain military aircraft? And they say, uh, Delicio Juliet, confirm the uh, aircraft has just vanished. He says, say again, So he hasn't heard that one. They say, is the aircraft still with you? And he says, it's um, nor south, approaching from the southwest. See, he's lost his his compass direction at the moment because he's been going around in this big circle so he can watch the object rather than he's forgotten about going to King Island at this point. He's mm -hmm. going around trying to watch what this thing is and it's vanished. It's gone above him at a 1,000 feet above. It's disappeared. It's come back. He doesn't know what it is. He's thinking it must be military because nothing else can go that fast. Mm. He's getting a bit rattled by now too. Um, <clears throat> uh, he says it's nor approaching from the southwest. And then he says, um, Delta Sierra Juliet, the engine is rough idling. I've got it set at 23.24 and the thing is coughing. Now, mm. <clears throat> he's reporting engine trouble. He's saying that his engine is, is, is uh, playing up a little bit. It's running at 23.24, 23 inches of manifold pressure, 2,400 RPM. That's the normal cruise speed of your engine when you're cruising. Mm -hmm. And it's running at normal speed, but it's coughing. He says the thing is coughing. So he, mm. that's got him a bit worried. Um, and so the air traffic advisor says to him, well, well, what are your intentions? Because he's now reporting he's halfway across the ocean and he's got engine trouble. So what would be your best um, type of action to take from now? Should you head back to the mainland? Are you closer to the mainland or are you closer to King Island? What are you going to do? Uh, and he's misunderstood the intention of the question. He just says, oh, look, I'm, uh, my intentions are to go to King Island, mm -hmm. which everybody knows that. He's halfway there by now. Um, and then he says, um, yeah, uh, Melbourne, that strange aircraft is hovering on top of me again. It is hovering and it's not an aircraft. Hmm. Uh, and so that gets acknowledged. Steve says, okay, Delta Sierra Juliet. And then he says, Delta Sierra, Delta Sierra Juliet, Melbourne. And then he's cut off mid-sentence, and now you play that audio. That's where okay. that fits in. And that's it. That that was all that was heard. And so then Steve tried to contact him again and called him, Delta Sierra Juliet, got no reply. He tried again a few more times, Delta Sierra Juliet, no reply. Uh, no wreckage was ever found of the aircraft. Um, nothing was found, no body, no aircraft, nothing. So the family have, they, there's no closure for them. It's now 44 mm. years. Uh, interestingly, um, the pilot's, grandmother is still alive she's in her 90s i, I met her wow. um, his mother's still alive um and the poor family they've got no no closure and then there's been um a whole barrage of 
of accusations that have come from um, a lot of the skeptics that that love to attack UFO witnesses <laughs> mm. and 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 uh, and blame them for the things that happened to them. Well, they've they, they actually tried to accuse um, Fred and his father for plotting to steal an airplane. Ah, and so I haven't heard that thing, one. <laughs> yep. Yeah, that, that, that was a major US skeptic that said that um, for fear of uh, litigation. I won't mention his name, but he's very well known back then in, in the 70s when this happened. But look, Fred, um, his family have been through terrible um, times with this and they've got no closure. And uh, uh, the thing's on my mind a lot. You know, I think about this case a heck of a lot. Um, and that's basically everything that happened to him. Um, and then how did they search right away? Did they go out and search right away? Well, yes, they did. They they started um, because he didn't reach his destination. That search and rescue time um, automatically means that there'll be a search. A, a search began, um, and of course, it, it, night fell, so they had to do, start the search the next morning. Now, there was the gentleman who took the cover photo of the, the book. This this unusual. Oh yeah, that's a sunset photo. That object that you can see there in the photo was in the actual area where the plane flew just a few minutes after this photo was taken, uh, or about 20 minutes after this photo was taken. Fred flew right into this area and then reported this strange object flying around him, and he couldn't describe it. Look at this object. It's hard to describe what that is. If you saw that flying around you, and look at this, all the blue sparkly bits on the left-hand side of it, that's not the sky. That's not in the photo before or after. The photographer took a series of six photographs of the setting sun, and he didn't see this because he was looking at his watch timing off 30-second intervals. He wasn't looking at, at the subject. He had a motor drive on his camera, and it was um, set on infinity. Uh, that yeah. object was sent yeah. to uh, Bill, Bill uh, Spaulding of Ground Saucer Watch in Arizona, and he said, well, it's, it's a solid object. That's all he could say, that it was definitely a solid object. There was, wasn't something hanging on a piece of string. That's the full photograph you've got there, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, is there a, has there been a question whether it's some type of um, negative anomaly or camera anomaly, <sighs> lens anomaly, because it's aiming into mm. the sun, anything right, like that? Right, right. Yeah, no. Mm -hmm. um, the the, the gentleman who took the photograph, I, I know him personally, his name's uh, Roy Manifold. He took the photo. He thought that the people that developed his film, he, they were just holiday snaps when he was on holiday down there at Cape Otway with his family. And he thought that the development people had, had destroyed his negative somehow when they developed it. And he took it back to them to complain. They said, no, no, that's on your image. There's nothing unusual there. But he didn't really believe them. So he went to Kodak. And it was Kodak film. He went to the Kodak laboratory, which was in those days in Coburg here in Melbourne. Um, it was the Australian headquarters for Kodak. He went there and he took them the negative and they looked at it under a microscope. They said, there's nothing wrong with our, the emulsion or anything. You've captured some object here. We don't know what it is. And then they said, look, could you leave the negative with us so we can examine it a bit further? Mm -hmm. And he said, uh, no, thanks. No, I'll take it home. Thank you. And he, he didn't leave it. He didn't trust them. He didn't leave it with them. Probably a smart move. Must... Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's why we've got the image today. It would have disappeared. Yeah. Yeah. You see, and... the CIA have these agents everywhere, don't they, all around <laughs> the world? Yeah. But any, anyway. So... Well, getting back to the recording, um, I yeah. heard, you know, as I was researching this case, I've heard that uh, anyone who's listened listen to the original recording say if that's not authentic it's really a horrifying thing to listen to um he's mm. in major distress which uh couldn't really be faked uh as you know as authentic as it sounds and uh mm. la last week james fox was on and he said he listened to the original when he mm. was in australia years ago and he thought it was you know horrifying Mm -hmm. And you have listened to the original. I, I have had you, uh, the privilege to hear it. And look, the original tape can be heard um, online. I can send you a link to it. So yeah, you can okay, I'll put that in it. the show notes. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, um, it's a website it's called Jack Frost, something or other, and it says I've actually heard of the person. Yeah, 
Uh, okay. Well, Jack, Jack Frost seventy one. He does things uh, on and Reddit on U, on UFOs. If that's yes, yeah, well, he, he's yeah. he's got this on his site and uh, and it's called um, ATC Valentich tape on the Jack Frost seventy one thing. Then you can listen to it. And Haynes is giving the talk and running the tape and stopping and explaining it because the audience can't really make out what Fred's saying, but they've never heard it before. When I hear it, I hear everything that Fred says, and it sounds clear to me. Um, and he and he explains everything. But because Steve Roby's part of the conversation is not on the tape, Haynes has um, recorded his own voice in place of Steve Roby, just so that it makes sense when he plays back. So he plays both sides of the conversation, mm. and, and it's quite good because anybody can now hear that because it's online. And that's a good thing because this was covered up. This was suppressed by the Australian government. Hmm. Um, as as James Fox would have said to you, um, he he's not allowed to say how he came to hear the tape because it's still it's under a seventy year clause. Oh. People could do jail time for possessing that recording. Is that's something? So how but did Doctor Haynes get it? But hey, but there's no cover up, folks. <laughs> you know? Anyway, well, Dr. Haynes was given a copy of the tape by an Australian UFO researcher who's um, who's passed away many years ago. A, a fellow named um, Paul Norman. Uh, he was um, he was from um, from Tennessee, and he moved out to Australia in the early '60s with his wife, and he became a UFO researcher here in Australia. And uh, he got a copy of the tape somehow, and he he took it straight to, to Dick Haynes so mm. because Haynes has the scientific ability to and, and acumen, you know, to do the all kinds of uh, audiometric, um, you know, um, investigations or, um, you know, uh, to test the tape and to try to work out what it is. And he tried and tried and he couldn't work out what that metallic sound was um at the end of the tape but anyway that's mm. what happened now that there's a part two to this story that only came along after what happened was um the science channel decided to do a documentary on it was called the unexplained files it was on oh, yes. cable tv the history channel well mm -hmm. season one episode one is about this case the Valentich case and i'm actually in that show oh. and at the end of it they played that sound that's where, why you've got the sound because it was out on on that unexplained files episode, hmm. because they got hold of it somehow and used it. Um, and they got it from Dr. Haynes. Haynes plays it. You see him hit the play button, and they and they see the tape going around, and you hear that noise, that funny noise, uh, because he'd been trying to investigate what that sound, what could have caused that sound, uh, for many years. Now, when that show um, came to air or got played in Australia. It rang a few bells with other researchers. Now, there's a fellow named Bill Chalker up in Sydney who had been investigating some UFO cases, and he came across um, a person who claimed that a farmer from South Australia had moved up to New South Wales years before. But this farmer said that, um, well, the, the guy, the fellow telling the story on the tape um, ran a hardware store and he spoke to all of his customers and he got all the UFO reports he could get and he kept them in a journal. And he said the most interesting one of all of the ones he'd ever heard was when a farmer came into his store, and it was in Coonabarabran, New South Wales, but the farmer was from South Australia and this farmer, the very morning after Fred had disappeared in Melbourne or going down to King Island, the very next morning an object was hovering around at um, uh, in Adelaide and making a funny sound and and he looked up he thought his equipment was faulty but he looked up and he said there was an aircraft stuck to the side of this large flying disc mm, really <laughs> stuck to the side like a moth stuck on a bumper bar of a truck I guess <laughs> wow it's not and really he said funny. Yeah. It was just sitting there, hovering there, an aeroplane, a whole aeroplane, and he got the registration number and scratched it into his tractor with a nail so oh. he wouldn't forget the number, and it was the same number of the plane that went missing the night before. So oh, that's, wow. that's, all in, that's all in the book too, and that's part two. And the sound of the gentleman telling the story is also on YouTube. I can send you a link to it. 
Um, yes. So you'll hear this guy recalling being underneath this large 30-metre diameter or 30-yard diameter, 90-foot object hovering above him, hmm. making a strange noise, and there's an aeroplane stuck on the side of it. So we don't, we, we can't find out who the farmer was, otherwise we would have interviewed the, the guy by now. Yeah. But we're hoping that with the release of the book and with things like podcasts and that, Somebody who knows will possibly come out and um, and approach us and tell us, oh, yeah, we know who he was and we can find out who he was, interview him or the family or whatever. Somebody must know, might be able to verify the story. But it was down in Adelaide um, in now, South Australia the next were there, day. Were there other witnesses? There was supposedly someone was driving in their car and saw something green well, that behind was, a plane? That, that was before Fred reported that he was being followed or that he was seeing the object because that was on the way to Cape Otway. Uh, while that was happening, while they were seeing that, Fred was actually busy talking to Steve Roby, the air traffic advisor, and resetting his search and rescue time because that was previous to getting to Cape Otway. When he got to Cape Otway, it was 7 p.m. and that was all over. Um, at that point, he was about to turn left and go down to King Island and six minutes after that, he reported being chased by this object. So that was that was as relevant, that sighting with seeing the green light, um, it's just a little bit more relevant than me seeing it flying across by Morris where my parents lived and where well, I lived at the time. Uh, so they didn't you know? see it follow an aircraft, even if it was another aircraft? No, they saw that it could have been Fred flying past and it could have had a green light following it. But Fred hadn't reported anything happening oh, yet. Oh, I see. That what it wasn't until he was halfway over the ocean that he reported this. So thing it could have been around. tailing him, though, right? Oh yeah, it could have. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. How about yep, that? Absolutely. So yeah, but this. So, um, well, we have we have a couple a couple of questions come up in chat, and I'm I'm going to uh, yeah. try to pop them up every once in a while. But I also, uh, when I look at cases like this, I like to always hear what the skeptics say and get you to hash it out so uh mm -hmm. and uh let's see and some of them i say are debunkers when they say things like suicide and stuff like that uh so christopher wants to know has the audio at the very end ever been analyzed to coax out the voice that can be heard um, no, there's no voice in that last part there's, there's no voice underneath no, all the. it's yeah. just noise it's just and noise. i'm it's sure they've done about everything they can to analyze it yep. Haynes tried to reproduce that sound uh, experimentally with aircraft radio and another aircraft, and uh, he, he never got anything that resembled the sound that came across the radio. What's interesting, too, is that Fred was, um, he must have been airborne uh, because of the curvature of the earth and the distance that he was down at Cape Otway. He was uh, the distance from the radio towers and everything. He had to be airborne for that sound. Some people say, oh, that metallic sound. Sounds like the plane's gone in water and it's underwater. There's just no evidence that he ever hit the water. They searched the sea for a week. They used an, a, a, um, a, they had two Orion avionics fueled aircraft from the from the navy that flew around to search deep. They can deep, search the depths of the ocean from a great height, and they found nothing. They searched for a week. They found nothing. There, there was an oil slick found on the water. That was searched, that was tested, and that turned out to be um, marine diesel oil. So, mm. so um, I mean, they, that is pretty rare without them finding debris or some type of oil slick. Well, you think of oil slicks mostly in larger planes, but still, you think that mm. they would find some type of evidence. Um, yeah, here's another uh, question. Where was the last location of the radar picked up for the plane on the plane before it disappeared? <laughs> Well, it's about halfway, almost halfway between Cape Otway and King Island. I don't know what the actual um, coordinates would be, but uh, you could use Google Maps and you could find the location. It's about, because he'd only flown about six minutes when he started reporting it, and then he was flying for about another six or seven minutes before the communications stopped. So he was about halfway between King Island and Cape Otway. But that's the actual location. Here is the um, a photo I made up with a model. This is in my book. It's a simulation of what it may have looked like for the farmer 
oh, to see this wow. object with an airplane stuck on it. That's, oh, so it was like upside down wing two. Yeah, see how the the prop is at the top, yeah, and the tail's hanging down. That's exactly how the the guy described it. And if a plane was in that oh, position, oh, yeah, if that if the plane was in that sort of position, it certainly would run out of fuel within about twenty seconds. And that tape goes for about seventeen seconds and stops. So that matches. Yeah, you know, know some of the um, some of the crazy notions that have uh, you know been put out there. Uh, you know, I mean, anytime there's a really interesting case, and this one is a rattling one uh, mm. that is, uh, you know, kind of, it always gave me the chills to think about the whole thing. Uh, mm -hmm. So anytime that happens, you have debunkers and skeptics coming up with silly things like, oh, it was the stars, and they just yep. don't account for all the other things that are involved. Um, mm. I thought the silliest one was that he was flying upside down and looking at his own reflection in the ocean. Uh in a small plane, you're going to know if you're upside down. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's right. That's right, you know, for sure. You're going to be hanging upside down. Um, yep. And yep. so, but but the, one of the questions I uh, I want to ask you is, yep. is it so that he never contacted King Island? Right. What, did he, he never did he never tell them he was expected to be flying in? I'm talking about the airport. In, in those days... Um, he would have had to telephone them. Oh, wow. he would have. <laughs> yeah, oh, we did not have a radio range. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Um, now the thing was, there was a bit of a question about why didn't he ask them to turn on the runway lights at the airport? Hmm. But at the time when he when he put in his flight plan, um, he was aiming to get there during daylight. He would have landed on the runway. And had he had he actually reached that destination and not disappeared and gone off the radio before he got there, it was still twilight. He could have landed on the runway without lights. Um, all the cars driving around on, on King Island at the time wouldn't have had their headlights on yet because we have this long period of twilight time of light. Had he been landed and then stayed there and gone and seen some people or something and come back later, yeah, it would have been a nighttime flight a return flight at night time but he never reached his destination and it was still daylight you know it was still twilight when he disappeared so yeah yeah so, he, there was no no question of having to turn on the lights at the airport and also he didn't put in his flight plan that he was actually going to land hmm. um he could have been just uh increasing his flight time he could have just gone over to king island done a u-turn and come back he didn't have to land to, to increase his flight hours. That was the point. But well, I heard I said, okay, he was going to collect crayfish or something. Yes, yeah. That, that wasn't <laughs> yeah. even, yeah, or visit friends or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Well, the thing is, the friends thing, he wasn't going to visit any friends that, that we know of, um, hmm. but he had been there at, at a time in the past and somebody w wanted to get a flight back, but he didn't have any life jackets. Um, and they noted that this time he had, four life jackets in the back so he could have brought passengers back hmm. but he was supposed to be the original story was he was going to be picking up some crayfish and he had he had an ice box an air ski an ice box in the back and the and the the owners of the aircraft don't like you transporting seafood products in the plane because the, the plane ends up smelling like a fish shop like mm. the fish market. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So because you've had these things in the plane. So he, the, the one theory was that he had these um, life jackets to hide the air ski from view, <laughs> see, so that he couldn't get pulled up for bringing back these crayfish. Um, oh, yeah. uh, the mechanic who worked on the plane said that many planes would come in and the, the, the crayfish or, or crawfish or lobsters would get out of the um, the ice boxes and be walking across the tarmac oh. and the pilots would be running around picking them up and putting them back in the box. That's, I that thought was it was going to be like a snakes on a plane type of situation. That, that's kind of a common thing apparently. But, look, we, we don't know. We just don't know. All we know is he it was a strange event, strange things happened, and uh, he was never found and, and we still have no answer to the mystery. But he did report something that he couldn't identify Nobody knows what it was. We've got that photograph that's on the front cover of the book. Uh, we don't really have much more than that. We have that unusual sound at the end. 
and uh, the family have no closure. Still, it's a missing person case. Uh, so it bothers a lot of people. Mm. It bothers me a lot. And it really bothers, nothing bothers me more than people trying to accuse the pilot of misadventure. One of these uh, skeptics said that they were running drugs between King Island. They don't, there aren't any drugs coming from King Island. It's a farming community. They have dairy products, <laughs> you know. It's, well, running it's cow milk. Yeah. It's ridiculous. And it was yeah. years ago. This is back in 78. You know, it's 44 years ago. So, right. And, and Fred now didn't did. even drink. He wasn't a drinker, even. He, he wasn't into drugs. Yeah. Yeah. All right. uh, this that? is something that I knew that I'd heard about that he had, uh, you know, an interest in UFOs. Uh, but to me, that doesn't change anything. Uh, you know, if someone has an interest in UFOs in this type of situation, doesn't mean like he's willing it. Uh, but uh, yeah. so well, what's the significance, uh, Dr. Richard wants to know, of his interest in UFOs? Well, I, I don't see great interest at all in that because. The point is that was the year that Close Encounters of the Third Kind was released to the cinemas. Mm -hmm. UFOs were on everybody's in everybody's conscience. He was flying a plane. He had to know what he may encounter at some stage. If you're flying a plane, your life depends on it. You yeah. have to be aware of these things. Um, the last movie he went, he took his little brother to the cinema to see Close Encounters of the Third Kind. That doesn't mm. make him a UFO uh, a crazy UFO nutcase or anything, mm. and how that could affect what happens to you while you're flying, what's flying around you. No. Yeah. No. Well, that's um, like, something... uh, you know, people often bring up that Travis Walton had an interest in UFOs ahead of time. Uh, I think someone's just, uh, I think someone just wrote something about Travis. Um, but anyway, yeah. uh, that. To me, it's like throwing the baby out with the bathwater. You know, I mean, it, it doesn't well, it doesn't really mean anything. You know, I mean, I had yeah. a passing interest in UFOs as a kid. And, uh, mm. you know, I had a UFO experience. That doesn't mean that uh, I willed it in any type of way or, or imagined it. Yeah, but so. uh, even if you, you were capable, it, what, what is this thing about you, you're interested in UFOs, therefore you can will them into existence? Really? <laughs> they're, they're, they're uh, yes, pretty rare events, you know. Ask Doctor Greer. <laughs> oh, well, boy, I'm going to get I'm going to get some mail for that. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, here, I I like Doctor Greer. I like the way if you send him an email, he responds. Which it's, it's pretty good. It's pretty rare these days. Uh, so, uh, uh, someone is putting something kind of silly in there. But uh, so, if you have a good question, uh, please do put it in all. Uh, in all caps, and I will post it up there. Yeah, I saw okay. um, Unsolved Mysteries with uh, Rob, uh, with uh, Stack way back yes. when, and uh, yeah. they did a, a segment on on this case. They, and they did a very good. They did a very good version of it too. They did, got nearly everything right. They just repeated the mistake that um, <laughs> that um, the other guy did first of all in in, um, in the earlier documentary. Uh, in search of um, Leonard Nimoy, mispronounced uh -huh. Fred's name, and so Robert Stack did it the same way, unfortunately. But yeah. no, that was a good a good reenactment. They did a very good job of that. Yeah, um, yeah, that was quite a good one, actually. Robert Stack doing that. Yeah, is his uh, is uh, Fred's father still alive, or has he passed? Yeah, no, he he passed on um, early two thousand, the year two thousand, unfortunately, and he never got answers. Yeah, but because Fred's I, mother and grandmother are still alive, and his sisters and brother. I know he said he just is hoping that he'll just see him walk in the door someday, which is very sad. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, uh, there was a, a guy, I can't, I'm really reluctant to mention the name of this guy, but you'd know who I'm talking about. I, I could text it to you maybe uh, in the chat thing on the side, but without saying his name on air. Um, an, an ex-CIA guy who was involved in the Watergate scandal, one of the guys who broke into the Watergate hotel. Oh. Came out, came out to Australia. That's like seven yeah. or eight. Yeah. He came out to Australia with his wife. He, he said he, he had some information about the Valentich case, which Australians had a right to know about. Wow. And he wanted an armed escort to get into Channel 9 to go on a TV show to tell us the truth about what happened to Valentich. Um. 
and I can't get hold of this tape. I went to their uh, Channel 9 archive people and at first I didn't know who the guy was and they, they couldn't help me because you need the name of the guy or the date of the show for the archives to be able to be found. And later on I found the guy's name and I mentioned the name and they said, who are you and why do you want to know about this? And then they said, mm. he was never on our show, go away kind of thing. <laughs> uh. Uh, they didn't want to touch it. And this guy... Um, became kind of a folk hero in America. He had his own radio shows and stuff, but he did time for the Watergate thing and he's ex-CIA and he claimed he needed an armed escort to get into a TV station in Australia to tell the story. It's all in the book, but, I again, I can't put his name. I didn't put his name in the book. I don't want to be sued. Um, I'll put it down here for you. Okay. And You, you have a look at your tech. Hang on. There. Can you see that name come up? Oh, oh my goodness! Yes. Yeah. So, <laughs> so we don't want to put that name out there. I, I, I wouldn't say because um, how much of that can be verified? You can't really get it verified, well, right? He, he was on that program because people contacted me and said they remember him being on the program and saying this stuff about Valentich. Uh, what he said on the TV show was that uh, there's an American base at Pine Gap in Northern Territory. Uh, he said that they have these drone, these disc, electromagnetically operated disc drones. They can fly anywhere for surveillance. He said they flew it down. One day the big one came back with an airplane stuck to the side of it and the pilot was in it and he was alive and he's now part of their program because <laughs> he knows too much about their top secret program. Oh, yeah. And so there was no, no aliens involved, no UFOs, folks. It was just a misadventure with one of our pieces of equipment sorry folks but he's okay but he's not allowed to talk to anyone because he's now part of a top secret program yeah I and mean, he can never contact his family again now, or anyone if, if, yeah. if that's not a made-up story yeah that, you know that that, that is uh that, that's a great one <laughs> i don't know what is yeah yeah so but anyway that that's what happens yeah and and, and it's, it's a great case deal. and you know we'll we'll most likely never get closure on it but however like you just said in the beginning mm. part of this show um you know you're on enough podcasts and you know your book gets out there and i've seen mm. this happen so many times when a movie happens you know like for instance when unsolved mysteries uh did this I, i'm wondering if anyone came forward they usually will report sometimes um you know later on that someone came forward and and this or that but when it gets mm. exposure like this um, mm. You know, I mean, people ask, why do you rehash old cases? And one of the reasons is, uh, you know, sometimes people finally come forward. Mm. Uh, yes. Calvin Parker, um, his yep. event back in 1973, um, some people have recently come forward and they're all verified uh, what right. they saw. And that right. was back in 73, which is, yeah. is pretty amazing. Yeah, there's been a lot about that case recently, uh, especially in England. The English UFO researchers have been talking about that a lot. Yeah, Philip Mantle is that really yes. involved. Um, I got him connected with Calvin. Uh, Calvin's good. not doing very well, um, just to let everyone know. Yeah, that's no, yeah, that's he's no not good. doing too well. Yeah. So. No, well, Philip Mantle's um, working very hard behind the scenes. Yes, mm. does a great job. Does a great job. Yeah. Do you have yeah, anything yeah. else uh, planned? Or is this your one case you want to focus on? Or well, are there other ones well, that intrigue you? We have about four, four or five minutes left. It's an interesting segue that you mentioned Philip Mantle. He's he's put this to me. He said to me, George, why don't you write a book about the Westall incident? Ah, yeah. Now, that's a, a school case here in Melbourne right. where... 1966, um, all, I believe, right? Exactly, exactly, where all these yeah. students... Well, I know, I know quite a few of the witnesses, and I could write a book about that. And Phil said, if I do that, um, he'll, he'll publish it for me. So that's good. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. But... Um, I'm still got to think about that. I'm working on it, and um, yeah. But the it's I've Amazon is fantastic for me because um, if you go to any book publishers and try to talk about a a pilot that's gone missing and and he saw a UFO and he disappeared, they don't want to know about it. They don't want to talk about it. They're not going to publish it. But with Amazon, you you put your files online and you and 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 they're now available, so people can just order it. You know, it saves yeah. me a lot of work. You know. Yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, it, it's great. And so I am also going. I have already put the uh, the link to your book and uh, in the show notes. So uh, I 
I know that uh, someone ordered it right at the beginning. Thank you, Martin. That's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. No, no, that's no, great. Because um, get some sales I want the then. story out there. It's Marketing is very difficult. Look, you know, it's one thing to sit down and write a book and take five years to do it. Marketing is a completely different field. I've never done that. I'm more of a technical guy. I do electronics. I pull things apart and repair them. Um, I'm into photography and cameras and repairs and and audio files and things. Um, you know, I'm not a marketing person. And I didn't write the book for it to become um, a big bestseller or anything. That's not what my intention. Uh, this I'm, I did this to defend the missing pilot because he's being attacked by people who just relentlessly say it's his fault. He was an idiot. He shouldn't have been flying alone. He was flying upside down. All this sort of crazy stuff that that it, it's not true. He he was a, an intelligent guy. He was common sense on two legs. To quote somebody from the the Air Force cadets who knew him well. Um, I never met him personally. I met his parents. I met his father many times. Mm -hmm. He used to go to the UFO. I got involved in UFO research because of this case. Um, mm -hmm. I ended up joining the local UFO group and I ended up running a UFO research group for 14 years. So oh. um, yep. it sort of has been a big part of my life, this case. And uh, so doing the book about it is um, it's kind of partly autobiographical because it involved me <laughs> to some extent, <laughs> only a small extent. But, you know, I, I saw this happen, yeah. part of it, the yeah. early part. So um, I'd love to know, um, you know, why they want to keep everything secret. And, you know, the, now that the uh, American Navy and the Pentagon have now come out and admitted that they study these things, they see them often when they're flying around, it's now got scientific legitimacy, and and we still get skeptics trying to attack poor Fred Valentich, a twenty year old guy. He's just a kid. I know. know, yeah. And he just reported what was happening around him. You know, that's what it was. Uh, and then he disappeared, and he's never been found. So, yeah, that's a tragedy. Um, I think it's a really interesting UFO case because you don't get many cases of pilots reporting them. Flight being buzzed by UFOs in the air and then disappearing—that's not a very common thing to happen. No, and I think no, the, the skeptics hate cases like this because they can't pull it apart. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a haunting yeah. one, and again, mm -hmm. we may never know. But uh, mm -hmm. it's—I'm glad that you you tackled it, and I was able to talk to you. And uh, oh, it's been a and, pleasure talking to you, uh, Martin. I've yeah. really appreciated it, and thank you very much. And I know you got to get to work, it. so I really appreciate you. Uh, yeah. Hanging in with us, and no, uh, you take care. Thank you. Thank very you much. very much, and uh, it's been a pleasure being on your show. Thank you very much for the privilege. You bet. All right. Thank you, take Mark. Care. Yeah. All right, everyone. So we'll be back next week, and we have uh, David Clark. He's going to be talking about the Calvin photo. It should be a very interesting show. Actually, it has to be pre-recorded. I'm going to be live in the beginning and at the end, and in chat the whole time. But I have to pre-record because of the uh, time difference in England. Uh, anyway, so thank you very much for watching today and remember to keep your eyes to the sky.